Welcome to the Metaphorist's Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is The Beast Console by E.C. Dorgan. E.C. Dorgan writes dreamy dark fantasy and monster stories in Alberta, Canada. She spends too much time wandering in forests and watching birds. Let's jump in. It's the best day of the year for a console. 500 guests invited to the National Day reception, and most of them are here, clapping while the console climbs up to the stage. There's the host country foreign minister, the chief of protocol, the dean of the diplomatic corps. The console spies a little girl in the second row in a gray dress. She makes a mental note to approach the girl later and tell her she too, one day, can be a console. There's a hush while the audience waits, By some miracle, every cell phone is silent. The console touches her helmet, her hair, and pushes down her doubts. Esteemed guests. A bird with black, indigo, and orange feathers flies over the stage. The console's voice trails while she watches it. By the time she remembers her guests, cell phones are ringing and everyone's talking. The foreign minister's chair is empty. Her audience lost. She starts to speak. She sits in her office after the reception, watching birds out her window while her staff bring her papers. She writes approved and signs her name without reading. Two years at post and she still doesn't know how to be consul. Her bunions ache and her nylons chafe. She's dying to take off her sharp heels and cracking makeup, but she's wanted at a dinner. They're always the same. Her diplomatic colleagues laughing and clinking glasses with their more gregarious counterparts. The consul alone with her plate. The other diplomats attribute her silence to some national quirk, but the consul knows better. She's still that strange little girl from the woods north of the capital, under the cover of helmet hair, and a title she'll never be fit for. It's past dark when she returns to the official residence. She needs both hands to take off her heels. Her husband meets her in the kitchen, wearing fuzzy socks. He holds out a colorless rose. Our anniversary. He kisses the top of her head. She tells him she needs air. She steps outside to the garden. Her bare toes breathe in the night. The garden is the only part of her job that she likes. During the day, it's all vehicle exhaust and traffic. But after dark, it's magical. She can smell the night-blooming roses, touch their tender petals. She feels her cheeks and finds them wet. The next instant, she's sobbing. She doesn't need to look up to know it's the moon. She cries every time it's full. Some nights, she doesn't stop until morning. The moon reminds her of her childhood, how she spent too much time alone in the woods, reading, how she lost herself there. She wishes she could remember what part of her is missing. She tastes dread when she wakes up in the morning, steals her toes for her pointed heels and her face for the camouflage of makeup. It's too much. She takes out her phone and searches until she finds a forest, brings the screen to her nose so she can smell the plastic and see all the thumbprints. At night, instead of staring at the ceiling unsleeping, she watches the trees until morning. 
The next thing she knows, she's skipping receptions and sending regrets to dinners, googling trees during meetings. One day, she's in a tough negotiation when she has a revelation. The thought rocks her entire being. She stops the session and rushes with her phone to the bathroom, locks herself in a stall and zooms to make the screen big, presses her nose into the forest, utterly certain, for once, what would fix her, to learn the secret name of trees. All day at work, she stares into the phone. In the evening, she closes herself in her home office and watches the forest some more. Her eyes strain. She misses deadlines and neglects to eat. She forgets her son's birthday and something stranger. She remembers things. At first, it's nothing. Bright colors, indescribable smells. They come to her when she's signing documents or watching her trees. Her husband asks if she's okay. Soon she's seeing whole scenes. Forests, dragonflies, pine trees. She gets flashes while giving speeches. She has to grip the podium with both hands now. One day she draws a dragonfly on a document. She scribbles over it, but her staff bring it back to her, seeking clarification. She's in her office one night, toes in the rug, bunions aching, when a memory returns in a rush. And she was still that little girl in the forest, long before she was console. A monster and the moon came down to her. She can still see the shine of the moon, reflecting so bright it burned her eyes. And the sound, how could she forget it, of that stretching of her heart from forest to sky. The sound of it snapping like gum the monster with its teeth dripping red. She buys gum and puts all five pieces in her mouth at once to try to make sense of it. She chews and smacks and stretches the gum between her teeth, but all that she feels is emptiness. One night, sitting in her office, the consul gets a call from headquarters. It's the head of department, the consul's boss. She instructs the consul to report back to the ministry by the end of the week for consultations. The consul makes the arrangements. She knows it's a euphemism, like everything in diplomacy. On her first day in the capital, the consul wears a gray power suit and slips on her sharpest heels. She puts on two layers of foundation and sprays extra hairspray on her hair. She looks in the mirror, but she doesn't see a diplomat. She spends the day in meetings. People in ashen suits call her consul and take notes when she speaks. It's stultifying. Her nylons itch. Her mind is on the forest in her phone. She touches her helmet hair and wonders how she became this thing. There's the hanging thread of a working dinner, but the consul needs to breathe. She leaves the ministry and walks two blocks to a park. It's nothing fancy, dying grass in a pond that's more of a puddle. The consul walks around it. The uneven pitch of the grass hurts her bunion, and her pencil skirt limits her step. She walks in circles and loses track of time. The sun descends behind buildings, and the nearby road quiets. She looks up and sees ducks in the water. Their necks are bright green, and when they swim, their rears waggle. The consul smiles. The next time she looks, the sky is dark and the ducks are long gone. Her phone buzzes and when she checks it, she sees five unanswered calls. She's missed her dinner. 
She returns to the hotel and kicks off her shoes. It feels good to throw her nylons in the garbage, though she has another pair laid out for tomorrow. She studies her reflection. Her helmet hair is held, but her foundation is cracked, and all she can see of her makeup is lip liner. For the first night in weeks, she doesn't pull up her cell phone forest. Instead, she looks up docs. Each search leads to another query. Two hours and many internet wormholes later, she finds herself making an appointment for a therapist. She has no idea how Googling Ducks has led her there. The next day, she finishes her meetings early to get to her appointment. A blast of essential oils hits her when she walks into the therapist's office. The scent might be pine, but it burns her nostrils. It's nothing like the imagined perfume of her forest. The therapist exudes confidence. She would make a good diplomat. She asks the consul about her job. The consul tells her she signs papers. She asks her about her marriage. The consul says her husband remembers anniversaries. She asks about her son. The consul describes what he's reading. The therapist asks if she's happy. The consul looks out the window. There's no bird outside to save her. She wants to tell the therapist she's a fake, that she doesn't know what to say at dinners or what to do with all the papers. She wants to tell her how she doesn't love her husband and how when she looks at her son, she doesn't know how to be a mother. Instead, she tells the therapist the one thing she promised herself she wouldn't share. She tells the therapist how she cries under the moon and how she lost herself so many years ago when she was just a little girl in the forest. She tells the therapist how she knows what would make her better how she'd throw away every diplomatic privilege and title just to taste, for one fleeting moment, the rounded syllables of the forest's secrets. The therapist's eyes widen. She opens her notebook and writes. At the end of their hour, she declares they'll need more sessions. The consul says she'll check her schedule. She walks out of the therapist's office and resolves never to go back. Back at the hotel, the consul peels off her god-awful nylons and rubs the budding bunion on her foot. If only she could throw her heels out the window. Her phone buzzes with an incoming message. She reads it and wants to toss her phone away, too. Instead, she pulls out another pair of nylons and reaches for her heels, stares at her cramped toes in the elevator, wishing it would descend slower. When the doors open, her husband greets her. He holds out a gray rose. His face, as usual, is blank. Surprise, dear. I'm here. Her son steps out behind him. His face says he'd rather be reading. They go to a restaurant. Her husband says their son spent the day choosing it. The consul doesn't believe it. Her son's like her. Even now, lingering over his pasta, his eyes are elsewhere. Her husband's the sentimental one. The one who wants this facade of family. He reaches his hand out to touch her. She doesn't pull away. She forces a smile. That's what diplomats do. Her eyes start to tear after dinner when they're waiting for the bill. No need to look outside to know it's the moon rising. She excuses herself to go to the washroom. When she looks at her reflection, the tears are already streaming. The consul's most important meeting is the next day with the head of the department, in her office on the executive floor. The consul has never been up there. 
When she steps out of the elevator, the first thing she notices is the different carpet. It's the color of smoke, and it cushions her toes, even her bunion. When she steps, her heels are silent. She arrives at the head of department's office and sees the head of personnel is there, too. It makes the console uneasy. The head of department doesn't acknowledge her. She types and hits send on an email, then picks up the phone to ask about a briefing note. Her slate suit is designer and her helmet's immaculate. The console looks out the window and waits. After ten minutes, the head of department points to the mints on her desk. Take one. The console complies. The head of department takes off her glasses. She finally looks at the console. How are you doing? Really? An impossibly orange bird lands on the outside ledge. The console's eyes follow it. The head of personnel opens her notebook. It hurts to look away from the bird, but the console needs her wits. The head of department watches her, unblinking. It occurs to the console that these consultations have nothing to do with bilateral relations and everything to do with how she's doing, really. When the console starts to speak, the head of personnel picks up her pen. She writes more notes than the therapist. At least the console avoids mentioning trees. Precisely 12 minutes after it started, the head of department declares the meeting over. She picks up the phone and says she needs that briefing note. She doesn't look at the console. The console comes away with an extra five days of leave and instructions to decompress. The head of personnel escorts the console out of the office. She tells the console she cares, but she's looking into her phone and typing a message when she says it. Her husband finds a cabin in the woods north of the capital. The console can't work the kettle, and she's afraid of the propane-powered stove. But the setting's incredible. Those ducks from the city are nothing like the birds in these woods. On her first day, she sees an enormous blue bird with a magenta beard, a bright orange and black bird with a yellow stripe, and a tiny purple bird whose chirp sounds like a dragon or a train engine. And the trees. Each time she looks outside, they take her breath. Her little forest on the screen pales in comparison, and their perfume, evergreen, is so much more than she ever dreamed. Their first morning in the woods, her husband makes her breakfast in bed. Homemade scones, blueberry jam, and hot coffee. By the time she gets dressed, he's back in the kitchen, making a batch of brownies. Her son is in the woods, probably reading. Growing up, she was always in the woods, too, with a book. She wonders if he watches birds. Her husband hums while he mixes batter. The console watches him and pours a second coffee. He's always been a different creature. Nothing like her and her son. At least he bakes. He pours the batter and for a split second, the tune he's humming wavers and his sleepy eyes go sharp. The console blinks and he's back on key. His eyes are once again soft. The therapist said she had imagination. The console can't figure out where the days go. Her husband makes a different pastry for breakfast every morning. He bakes more brownies than they could possibly eat. In the evening, he barbecues hamburgers. One night, he gets mustard on his shirt and they laugh like a family. When the sun goes down, he makes a campfire and they roast marshmallows and listen for loons. Her son surprises her with his knowledge of them. The moon rises, but she's surrounded by trees, though she only cries a little.
by the fourth day of her decompression, the consuls had enough of watching her husband bake. She puts on boots, so much better than heels, and pulls her hair into a ponytail. She takes a compact out of her purse and squints into the glass. It's been days since she looked in the mirror. There's powder stuck to the glass. It makes her face soft and hazy. She looks decades younger without her helmet. When she steps outside, the first thing she notices is how the soft earth cushions her feet, even her bunion. She breathes in spruce and pine and regrets spending the previous days indoors. She walks out to the trees and takes in a world beyond that pond in the city. Her nighttime garden pales. To think, she wasted all that time staring into that screen. This is a forest. Her fingertips brush on silken tree needles while she walks. She's never touched anything so soft. The perfume wafts up from her fingers. It makes her lightheaded, almost giddy. She marvels at the club mosses and lichens. She used to play with them when she was little, in these same woods. Dragonflies flit, bright reds and blues. She didn't know the world contained so many of them. She stops in front of a towering pine. Can't even breathe when she looks at it. The whole universe is there in its branches. When she touches her palm to its bark, it thrums electric and vital. She closes her eyes and asks for its name. She waits and continues walking. The forest keeps its secrets. She only knows it's past dinner when the moon rises glimmering behind pines, and the tears start to flow from her eyes. She should go back to the cabin. Her husband will be worried. Her son won't know she's gone, but now, reunited with dragonflies, the thought pains her. She could spend a lifetime here. There was a time she thought she would. A memory surfaces. She was tired of being that weird child, reading books under pines, playing with club mosses. The other girls were going places. They'd be important. Consoles, maybe. She wanted to be like them. For a while, she almost was. She made a career. She got promoted. She married her husband. She had a son. Never mind that inside, she felt dead. She stops walking. She's about to turn back, but that's when she sees it. A light, red and gleaming, behind the farthest trees. The consoles stepping between trees, deeper and deeper into the forest. The red beacon isn't nearing. She's on the verge of being lost. There are bears in these woods, and worse things. She almost remembers. She's about to give up when the air changes. Her nose is stuffy from crying, but when she breathes, it's undeniable. Damp and rot, a whisper of fungus, and something else. The scent gets stronger as she moves to the light. She trips on a log and almost stumbles. She sees it when she straightens. A clearing in the trees. A pile of logs in the center, slick with moisture, and shining blue and orange with saprophytes. And under the logs, expanding in every direction, all the way to her own two feet, the earth is bursting with ghost pipe. It's too bright for her eyes, even under moonlight. But it's what's sitting on the logs that takes her breath the source of that gleam she's been tracking all night. She sucks in her breath. The monster's ear flickers, and it starts to turn its head. Eyes fix on her, red flames. They were easier to look at through trees. 
Looking into them, her eyes sting. She drops her gaze as the monster pulls back its lips. Its incisors are longer than her arms. The monster stretches its lips farther, and the console loses her breath. Her knees no longer support her. Behind the terror of those sharp, blood-dripping incisors, she sees what she'd lost all those years ago in the forest. She can barely make out the shape, but for once in her life, she's certain. There, behind fangs, is her bright red beating heart. The memories rush back in a flood. The monster was smaller then, more of a pup than a beast, with sharp baby teeth. It's not so young now. There's gray around its muzzle, a fleck of white on its chest. Its fangs are brown and rotting. A dragonfly lands on its snout, reflecting bright blue in the moonlight. The console watches it. She didn't know there were nighttime dragonflies. The monster shifts and the whole forest shudders. Her teeth rattle. She imagines her husband pausing his baking while the ground rumbles under him and across the ocean, the petals of her nighttime roses vibrating. When the monster focuses on her, her own heart jumps in its teeth. Her brain screams at her to run, but instead she watches in horror as her arm starts to extend and her fingers reach out, grasping. The console wants to recoil and to walk, no run back to the cabin. But her feet are stepping in the wrong direction. She's walking, arms forward toward the monster, her body insisting on reunion with that lost piece of her. She steps up on a log, grabs a handhold, and climbs higher. The saprophytes on the wood make her palms slip. She perseveres. Now she's only a few feet from the monster. Her whole body is trembling. The dragonfly spooks. The monster's breath is rotten. Her face is to its teeth. She's so close now, she can feel the percussion in her spine. She inches closer, and her heart in its mouth beats faster. This sounds hypnotic. She's not used to it, but there's something about it. Hard to imagine now, how she existed all those years, oceans away. For a moment, she's back in her office in the official residence, toes in the rug, eyes straining, chest dead silent. Some things are worse than monsters. This time, she doesn't hesitate. She closes her eyes, and even though her hands won't stop shaking, she lets the intelligence of her body guide her fingers. There's the brush of bone, the tackiness of gums. Her fingers reach deeper. Then she feels it, something vital, electric. She doesn't breathe. It's thumping. Her fingers can't quite reach around it. She squeezes her wrist through the space between its incisors, then her elbows. She's in the monster to her armpits. She closes her fingers around her heart. It slows. She exhales. When the monster's jaw loosens, the console isn't expecting the loss of resistance. Her legs slide, and before she can find her footing, she's sprayed in the face by a torrent of water. It knocks her to the ground. She hits her chin on a log and her knee on a rock. But the important thing, she's still holding her heart. Water streams into her boots. The ghost pipe submerged. The monster is weeping. It looks smaller without her heart. Now, instead of fire in its eyes, there's only loss. Her eyes get wet. She knows what it's like to be in this world without a heart. She has a vision of the beast crying every full moon, drowning the forest in sorrow. She starts back toward the cabin, but it's slow going. 
the monster's tears are to her knees. She has to wade through the water, and her soaked boots and pants weigh her down. Her heart thuds in her hands, warm and slimy. She tightens her fingers. She's only gone a few steps when the monster starts moaning. Sorrow cracks the night, and the console lets out a sob. She imagines her husband crying into his brownie batter, and her son wiping a tear from his book, blurring the print. The monster howls. The whole forest grieves in reply. The sound echoes in her chest and she remembers. Last time, she stood facing the monster pup as her child heart fluttered in its teeth. The pup's eyes were sad. Her eyes filled up too, but she'd made her decision. She felt grown up. Dragonflies flitted and she swatted them away. She doesn't want the memory, but now she can't stop it. The monster didn't steal anything. She ripped her heart out by herself. She can still see the blood running between her fingers, the tears filling up her hollowed chest as she turned her back to the forest. She was still blinking, forcing back tears, when the moon came down and drowned them both with its brightness. Now the water's so high the console has to swim. She's out of shape and out of practice. The heart in her hand makes it harder. Every time the monster howls, the water surges. The world will be submerged by morning. The console struggles to keep her chin above the water. She reaches out to a treetop and hugs it, spits out salt water and tries not to go under. An idea starts to form. There's no time to weigh her options or pull out that chart with the acronyms from the ministry. Her title and helmet hair can't help her. She has only herself to decide if it's a fair compromise. She'll have to trust her diplomatic instincts. For once, be a consul. She closes her eyes and lifts her hand above water. Holding the treetop with her elbow, she opens her other palm wide. The forest goes silent. The next instant, the monster's bounding to her, each step sloshing the woods. The consul loses hold of the treetop and goes under in a wave. She swallows salt water and only barely keeps hold of her heart. She swept left, then right, and upside down. Her lungs burn. There's no air. She can't find the way up. Panic rises, then overwhelming sleepiness. She's about to give in when her head bursts through the surface. By some miracle, she hasn't lost her heart. She coughs and sputters, starved for air. Her eyes clear, and she's only inches from the monster. It smells of wet dog. The water is barely to its waist. It extends its arms and its claws reflect moonlight. The console's too spent to recoil, and she doesn't have any fear left in her. The monster reaches into her palm and takes her heart with cupped claws. When she looks again, her heart is beating, slow and constant, behind its blood-dripping teeth. The water's already receding. The monster blinks and fire returns to its eyes. It tilts its head, its eyes a question. The console considers. Can she live with the beast? She brings her hand to her chest. She can't fathom returning to post with that silence. The beast licks its lips and lets out a soft whine. She takes a breath. She's a diplomat, and it is, after all, a compromise. She nods to the monster, and its arms and its legs bend inward. There's a scraping and a softening of bone, a pop. The monster squeezes its femurs through the narrow space between her ribs, 
followed by its scapulas and incisors. Once inside the empty space of her chest, it steps in circles to make a bed. The monster curls into a ball, warm and dry, and promptly falls asleep. Her clothes are dry when she reaches the cabin, though her boots are likely unsalvageable. Her husband's left dinner in the fridge. There's even dessert, a homemade brownie with its own paper plate. He set a place at the table with a note that says, enjoy. She's surprised at her appetite. Even though it's past midnight, her husband trades his fuzzy socks for shoes and her son leaves his book in the bedroom. They sit around a campfire, roast marshmallows, and listen for loons in the dark. Her husband sings a camp song, and she and her son roll their eyes. They could almost be a family. She goes to bed smelling of salt, smoke, and animal. The moon's full, but she doesn't cry. The next full moon, the consul's in her official residence office, toes deep in a rug, a pile of documents on her desk. Her cheeks are dry. She's almost through the backlog. She's been catching up in the evenings, after her receptions and dinners. She signs her name on the paper and writes, Approved. She sits back in her chair and something stirs in her chest. She puts her hand to where she used to be hollow and feels the monster inside, breathing. For a moment, she thinks it will leap out of her and show the world those teeth. Instead, it sighs and rolls from its haunches to its side. It gets cramped in there. The monster still smacks its lips, then it's back to dreaming forests. She still doesn't understand how it fits in her. Sometimes she worries that its teeth will slip if she jumps or loses her balance, but she likes when it tells her secrets. Now, when she goes to her dinners, she doesn't care whether her table companions talk to her. There are complications, but that's to be expected with any compromise. The monster gets stiff when she spends all day at a desk. The consoles started taking walks at lunch, before her afternoon meetings, so it can stretch. The monster likes birds. So does the console. The monster's urges are stronger. She started to close the blinds in her office to avoid tempting it. The monster has an appetite. She's starting to suspect what it eats. She tries not to think how that sustains her. She tells herself her son was bound to lose his heart anyway. All that time in books. As for her husband, at least now she can bake. One year later, she's back at the podium, looking down at an audience, at her very own national day. She's in her best helmet, three layers of foundation, and a technicolor blue power suit. She can't remember the last time she wore heels. There's a hush in the audience. She has the notes her staff prepared, but she's feeling confident, so she keeps them in her pocket and gives her speech off script. The audience, including the host country foreign minister, listen, rapt. When she sees a little girl in the audience, she improvises, telling the crowd one day, that little girl will be a consul. The audience claps and the little girl beams. A bird, indigo and orange, flies over the stage. The consul pauses her speech to admire it. No one notices how tightly she grips the podium. The audience waits. She puts a hand to her chest to quiet the monster, then, unrushed, continues to speak. After the speech, she escapes to the washroom, 
stands at the mirror and admires her helmet. She likes the way her foundation's cracked. She parts her lined lips and her reflection does the same. Since there's no one else in the washroom, she opens her mouth wider, looks past her two golden molars and her titanium crown. In the back of her throat, two fire eyes gleam. She tilts her head farther. In the mirror, there's a flash of long teeth, then the percussion of a hundred beating hearts. The rhythm takes her back to the forest. She breathes in evergreens and faint fungal rot. The porcelain sink reflects moonlight. Pine trees and saprophytes sprout up in the toilet stalls. Ghost pipe bursts through the sink. The forest thrums with life, electric. The console and her beast smile at their reflection. Then, unrushed, they start to recite the secret name of trees. That was The Beast Console by E.C. Dorgan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.com.